Hello everyone and welcome to the Cricket Podcast with me, Jack Hope and Ross Legg. How are you doing, Ross? Marvellous, thank you mate. How are you? Yeah, you know, not too bad. I had my work Christmas party this afternoon. Uh, a little bit earlier on in the day, we spoke with Jared Kimber. It's been it's been all go um, on, on my front. What, what did you do for your work party? Did you do like a, an online cocktail class? Or what, what, what's the thing? No, we had like o- online drink whichever beverage you want. So I had um, a, a glass of Pinotage. Uh, and okay. then alongside that, we played Pictionary and did a quiz. So... So, you know, probably better in in many ways than physical, real Christmas parties. Um, yeah. And then in some other ways, not better. Yeah, but there's a real lack of consequence, and I quite like that as a, as a thing in Christmas parties. Um, anyway, this week on the Cricket Podcast, we're mainly talking with Jared Kimber. Uh, as I said, me and Max spoke with Jared for about an hour earlier on today. It was a great chat. We covered everything. I mean, it was a really eclectic conversation with topics ranging from Basil Oliveira and his experience um, coming out of South African cricket and, and uh, well the, the, the issues with race that the game still has to some extent uh, and, and then sort of extending on to, to Jared's uh, well time as a general manager in the in the CPL um, it's a really entertaining chat so that will be the second half and, and by half I mean most of the show um, <laughs> But before we get into that, we do have a little bit of um, cricket news for us to get through. Uh, New Zealand have been in action against the West Indies. We'll be touching on that. India v Australia. That test series is about to kick off. And uh, Mushfikur Rahim uh, tried to punch one of his teammates on the pitch. So we'll be sharing our thoughts on uh, how good the punch was, I think. (laughs) Um, Ross... We're going to pretty much dive straight into that, but 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 before we do, what do our listeners need to know? Uh, they need to know where to follow us. It's at the Cricket Pod on Twitter and Instagram, and follow us on all the podcast platforms that you use, and subscribe on in, on iTunes if you would like to. That's um, sage advice. Um, where would you like to start, Ross? We've got New Zealand, we've got India. We, we actually had some England squad news as well. Uh, well, I'm going to start with where's Rohit? Where's Rohit? Let's go. Where is Rohit yeah. then? Yeah, so where's Rohit Sharma currently? Um, so obviously he's uh, um, he's, he's on his way. He's on his way to Australia. He's uh, been in quarantine. He's seen his dad. He's lost a bit of weight. He's rebuilt his hamstring. Rohit is on a plane currently as we speak on his way to Australia. That's good to hear. Um, which which so so the four test series between India and Australia that kicks off uh, from the seventeenth, if yep. if they haven't changed the date since Max told us that last week. Um, when when does that mean uh, Rohit Sharma will be in play, and and what does that mean for India's team in in the tests before the Sharmanator turns up? Uh, so he'll be back for the third and fourth test matches. Apparently, um, he's going to definitely be a little bit rusty. There's obviously no no pre games or anything like that, but maybe um, his class will uh, outdo any kind of pre match um, kind of preparation. Um, for India, that means that there's a bit of trouble at the top. Just, just like there seems to be, or there has been for England, there has been for Australia with injuries, etc. We'll come on to a bit. 
Um, but for India, it means that there's going to be a bit of a reshuffle. So they've got um, Agarwal, who sits at the top, and Prifty Shaw, who had a torrid IPL, like an absolutely torrid time uh, opening up for the Delhi Capitals in the IPL, and um, was in contention. Um, however, KL Rahul, um, who's in a rich vein of form of um, stat padding, and um, Shrubman Gill, who is actually uh, Gavaskar's pick. And I think if, if you're Gavaskar, and I think India... I'm not too sure Gavaskar's picks throughout the years, but we, we've we've talked about Gavaskar before, haven't we? Of his kind of batting for days on end, and uh, he quite likes the look of Gill. So um, who are we to disagree? Okay, okay, that's good. Um, from the Australian point of view, uh, you mentioned there are some injuries. Who is out for them? Um, so Pukowski took a blow to the head, and mm-hmm. I think his tenth con- um, career concussion, uh, which <laughs> makes him sound like a boxer, and he's he's definitely out. Um, David Warner is unfortunately out as well. Um, I think that's a moustache-related incident. Um, and then where you've got um, uh, Joe Burns, who's hit sixty-two runs in nine first-class games recently, so he's not in a not in the best of form. Um, which kind of leaves them with an op- option, really. They've, they've kind of got Matthew Wade, who could potentially come in as an opener. Um, are you saying here? As an, yeah, as an oh, opener, right. so that's oh, what they're wow, saying yeah. at the moment. So, uh, yeah, the old makeshift um, small man syndrome uh, has obviously replaced Warner yeah, bringing yeah. Matthew Wade. And um, the, I and do, got... are Renshaw and Bancroft not in contention for some reason? Uh, well, it's, no, it's Marcus Harris at the top. Oh, okay, uh, so, so I guess the other two are, are not in the bubble or something like that. So they, Australia are having to, to, to well, press Matthew Wade into a position that he probably wouldn't be ideally cut out for, you wouldn't think. Yeah, well, they they say he's got all the credentials for a, a good test opener, um, and I'm I'm not entirely sure I agree with that. <laughs> but um, that's 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 the kind of thing that they're uh, they're, what, they're saying. So. What credentials does Matt Wade have? That the, the... Uh, he's so there was a there was a quote from Langer saying he's got an aggressive uh, style um, that could complement what we like to do as Australian uh, openers, and he's got good foot movement. So, all right. Well, well, yeah. Look, look, we we aren't picking him. And Australia are, so we'll see who's right. Um, yeah, but we also we also have to remember that Matthew Wade is a better cricketer than both of us. So who are we to judge him? <laughs> that's, that's what we need to really figure out. Um, anyone uh, else out for Australia? So that, it sounds like all of their openers. Uh, yeah, so Steve Smith had a back spasm today. If we're we were talking about that, so he is now a risk for the game. But I can imagine they will uh, they'll loop him up and throw him out into the ring, um, and I'm sure he'll be fine. Um, but then the uh, prodigy and the next Ricky Ponting, as he's been dubbed, Cameron Green, has been uh, he's he's set to feature if he passes the concussion tests. Yeah. Okay. So it it, it sounds like both teams have had some some trouble there. Um, Ross. Last week we did make some predictions um, on mm-hmm. air. Uh, I think you said India might win the series. Was it two um, oh, yeah, one? Are you going to stick with that, do. bearing in mind the injuries? Well, uh, yeah. Well, Kohli's not there, is he? So that's a huge loss yeah. for India. Like, absolutely huge loss. Um, it is only their second game under lights, so the daylight test match at Adelaide. So that's going to be interesting. But they played Bangladesh before and quickly um, got rid of those. Um, I think one of the interesting things here is about um, who they picked to wicket keep, and uh, it's between um, Saha. Who uh, we're are we a fan of Rim and Saha? Um, we did once compare him to Louis Saha, so maybe not. <laughs> um, and then Rishabh Prant, who we are a fan of. Um, I think India are going to shoot themselves in the foot and pick Saha over Pant. I would be picking Pant if I was them. Uh yeah. I mean, I'm. I I can't really. Everyone says Pant is the next big thing, um, but I, for whatever reason, have just never seen it until I and and until I see it. I refuse to believe that he is. So, 
Um, well, well, he hit 100 in one of the war. Yeah, he hit 100 in one of the warm-up games. So um, we'll see if they decide. <laughs> oh, to I not didn't pick see him it. Like I say, I didn't yeah. see it. So how do I know it even happened? Um, very, very true. If Richard um, Pant scores a century and I don't see that he scored the century, did he score the century? Yeah, that great, great question. Great question. <laughs> um, and they've obviously got a good bowling lineup. I think they're going to go with Yadav to support um, Sh- uh, Shami and Bumrah. Um, Jadeja's racing to be fit as well, but Ashwin's not a bad replacement if they decide to play him. So, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting. So I think uh, I'm going to stick with my prediction that India are going to overturn the Aussies purely on the base that I want them to. I think, else. I, think I said 3-0 Australia. It sounds like Australia have probably got the worst of the injury luck. Um, although their bowling contingent is still relatively or, or completely unharmed. Um, so, I, I, you know, I'm going to stick with 3 nil Australia. Um, yeah. Where would you like to go next? Uh, the BBL. Um, and I just want to say that I have zero interest in the Big Bash League. Okay. Is um, that all you want to say? <laughs> where well, would you like I, to I, go I, next? <laughs> no, I just... I'm just, I'm just, I'm just, I was just going to put it out to you around uh, the the IPL is really, really interesting because the, the, of the the way in which it works. The the fact that the BBL has none of like the key Australian players in because they're all playing Test cricket just means it's a real lack of interest from me. Uh, is that the same for you? Um, see, I think the problem for me is time zones. So one, I I agree the quality is is worse, um, but two, the games like. Then just not on at a great time for people in the UK. I don't want. I don't want to wake up at five in the morning, or earlier to watch uh, a not particularly high quality T20 match featuring players I've mainly never heard of. Uh, <laughs> and um, and two, if even if I were, if even if I did want to do that, they they kind of bleed into the working day. So you yeah. can't, you wouldn't be able to watch the conclusion. I have, I've, I've sort of followed a little bit. I've seen the conclusion of um, a couple of games that have been closed. One of the nice things about it is you can sort of choose to t- tune in for the last 20 minutes if if it does look like it's going to go close. Um, I saw uh, Daniel Sams score 65 off 25 balls. That was quite good. Um, but, it's, I, I mean, I think the Big Bash is probably the... the, the the model for what they want with the 100 in that it's very easy to consume. It's not particularly mm. complex or it wasn't until they added all the crazy rules. Um, and it's not, it, I don't think it has pretensions really to be the next IPL. It's very much just, it's served up as fun. And I, th- I can see why people like it um, in, mm. in that context. Um, but for well, the reasons I, I said, a, I'm not waking up to watch it. Yeah, well, as a as a T Twenty cricket purist, I I'm sick and tired of it. That's why I am. <laughs> uh, but Peter, but Peter Siddle, uh, he took a fiver. Uh, yes. he's, he's ever he's evergreen. Um, but he's I think he's inspired himself by having a slim, shady haircut. He I, I did like, see the haircut. Um, yeah, he's he's dark, he's bleach blonde his hair to look. I don't know, like a curly haired Ellen DeGeneres. I'm not sure it's a good look for him. I, I would agree. I would agree. I mean, like discussing haircuts on a podcast never really goes over that well. Not a visual medium. Um, but if you want to Google it or, or look it up on Twitter, it's uh, it's worth probably the 10 seconds of your time for the laugh that you'll get at the end of it. Um, yeah. BBL done. Uh, we've got two more topics on the docket, or maybe yep. three. Uh, what, what, where would we like to go? Where would we like to go next? We've got England. Well, we've got Mushrika yeah, Rahim. So we'll finish. We'll finish on England. So, uh, what's happening in New Zealand um, versus West Indies, Jack? Well, we can finish this off quite quickly, or we can do this bit quite quickly. Um, New Zealand absolutely tonked the West Indies again. Uh, they won by an innings. Um, th- uh, this time, the West Indies managed to make it okay for the first session or two of the match. Um, they hadn't mm-hmm. lost the game. 
buy lunch or something ridiculous. Um, however, after that, it was largely downhill. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, they improved. The first they say lost by an innings and more than 100 runs. I think they lost by an innings and 20 odd or something like that. So a, a whacking, but not as bad a whacking. That's really all you need to know um, about that. They, I mean, to be honest, this New Zealand team at home are really good. Uh, it's not, it's not necessarily a disgrace for the West Indies to be battered by by this team. They're 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 way better. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, uh, it's good. It's good to see Ross Taylor still playing as well. I think he'll play until until I die. I reckon. Maybe yeah. The new Triscothic. Yeah. Um, should we quickly talk about Mishfakur Rahim? Yeah, so uh, so what happened here? He said that he punched one of his teammates. So Mishfaku Rahim playing in the Bangladesh League. Um, he was keeping wicket. Uh, the ex-captain of Bangladesh, a respectable cricketer. Uh, the ball goes up in the air, goes to a kind of fly-slip area. Third man runs around to go and take the catch. Rahim runs to take the catch. And they minorly bang into each other when Rahim takes the catch. The ball isn't dropped. Rahim catches the ball. Um, and then, then sort of immediately following the impact with uh, whoever this third man fielder is, he raises his fist. And you know um, the the famous football clip where Paolo Di Canio goes to punch Martin Keown, mm-hmm. um, and then the referee falls over, and it's hilarious. It's it's like that. Um, it it's one of those things that takes cricket internet the cricket internet by storm because that never happened nobody tries to punch someone least for their own teammate on a cricket pitch but actually it's not that big a deal uh, again mm-hmm. similar to the peter's fiddle thing worth looking it up because it is kind of funny but <laughs> doesn't necessarily come across that well on a podcast uh, raheem for his trouble has been fined 25 percent of that match fee um and and that's the end of the saga or what we think. I mean, like maybe in the next game he'll, he'll actually punch someone. <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to think of the background. What, what has caused him to react well, this way? It's a good what, what, what is the relationship between him and the third man? Is he the third man in a marriage that's gone wrong? I don't Who know. knows? It's, it's, the, the, um, I think the thing, the thing that happens afterwards is maybe more interesting because you can see in the team huddle they're filming Raheem and he's like trying to justify. You can see he's trying to justify why it might have been reasonable to punch or, or to, to raise his fist uh, to a teammate. He's gesticulating. You can kind of see all the other players being like, this guy's a bit intense. We need to keep fucking back here, lads. Um, anyway, that's Raheem. Uh, England, should we do a quickly blast through England and then we'll get to Jared Kimber? Yep, sounds good. So the England Test Squad has been announced um, versus Sri Lanka um, for the upcoming Test Series in January. Jofra Archer and Ben Stokes have been rested whilst Burns is channelling his inner Virat Kohli um, and is staying home for the birth of his first child. Um, Let's start with the selection of England. um, And I'm not going to touch upon Sri Lanka because I don't know any of their players. Um, (laughs) uh, They've picked six spinners which is interesting, for the touring party. So um, I think they've picked every single spinner they possibly could do um, from England. Um, but the big one is Moeen Ali is back. Yes, I saw this. Um, so to go along with Don Best, Jack Leach, uh, Crane, Parkinson and Verdi. Um, let's face it, Moeen's been a bit naff for quite a while now. So this is uh, this is this is probably last chance hurrah for him. Uh, well, I don't, I'm not actually sure that's the phrase. Um, I think it's last hurrah. Last hurrah or last chance saloon. There's no yeah, last chance hurrah. Um, yeah. Which one of those do you want to go with? Then I can answer your question properly. Uh, let's go with the first one. Last hurrah. Uh, no, I don't think it's the end of Mo and Ali for England. I think Mo and Ali will play um, at least until the end 
of the current T20 cycle, so the T20s. World Cup. I in mean, India. Te- I mean, this is for, this is for Test match cricket. I'm saying that if, if he's not going to be picked, he's not going to be picked to go to the Ashes, is he? Because you're not going to take Moeen Ali to Australia. You might take him to might. India. I think they might. might. Really? Yeah. Well, they're they're going yeah. to India straight after Sri Lanka, so I think he's almost certainly going to be on the plane for that. Um, I think if he bowls well, and he probably will get a chance in in the Sri Lanka or the India series to play and bowl. Mm. If he bowls well in that and then gets back in the team for the summer, I don't think they'll drop him for Australia. I basically I don't think the England team trust any of the spin options in, in county cricket. Um and I think they see Moeen Ali as a better option if only because he can bat. Uh, and I think that's probably why Don Best played all seven tests this summer or all six tests this summer. Um it's not yeah. necessarily because he's an amazing bowler. It's cuz at the very least they knew he was going to be able to bat a bit. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's hope that Moeen Ali um, finds himself like some soppy muppet on his gap year in Sri Lanka. Um, they're going to pick two spinners. So, who are you picking out of? Um, so, the, the three who are actually in the in the reckoning are Best, Leach, and Moeen. So I think they you, might uh, pick them all. Oh yeah, really? Yeah, because while well, Stokes isn't playing, is he? So that frees up a pos- that position, presumably for Moeen Ali. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think they're going to pick three seamers. So Wokes will probably drop out, which means you can pick Best, say. Uh, or, or Leach, and then they'll probably keep Bess in the team. That's what that's I imagine. I imagine how they'll do it. I, I'd be really stunned if they had a th- three seamers playing in all of those games. They might. I mean, the last time we were there, they played Anderson in one of the tests and Broad in one of the tests, or something like that. Yeah. Um, Curran played and didn't bowl in one of the games, or something like that. It was it was, it was a, a kind of confused thing. But basically, they came to the conclusion, probably rightly, on those pitches, that the maximum spin was the way to go. And so I, I think they'll do that again. Brilliant. Okay, uh, and then top of the order, um, with Burns at home with his child, um, Sibley and who is the is the question at the moment? So obviously Johnny Bairstow is back in the England squad because he's, he's he just de- he never leaves really, is he? He's he's always there. Um, Zach Crawley kind of established himself as number three with his two hundred and sixty-seven. Was it against Pakistan in the summer? Um, what do you think is going to happen there? Do you think um, Crawley's going to be promoted? I think they'll he'll... almost certainly promote Crawley, and then they will yeah. either play. Bearstow at three or Dan Lawrence at three, but probably Bearstow at three. I don't, I don't really see why they'd have recalled him if they didn't expect uh-huh. to pick him. Although if they didn't, yeah. if they weren't going to pick him, they'd have just picked another, another uh, prospect, wouldn't they? Well, yeah. Well, this is the thing. I'm, I'm surprised they've taken Josh Butler as well out of this because obviously they rested Archer, they rested Stokes. Butler's been in the bubbles. Pretty similar to them as well, so I'm surprised they've taken Butler, especially as Folks is around and Bairstow is he's fine. He's he's, he's going to be in the squad. We might as well just accept that Johnny Bairstow is going to be an England player forever. Um, so I think the what do you think the order looks like for me? You've got Dom Sibley, Crawley. I think Joe Root will actually bat three. Dan Lawrence will be at four. Josh Butler five. They're, I want them to play Folks, so maybe this is just me channeling my inner Max. I think that I think they have said they're not going to play. They're going to play Butler as wicketkeeper, which means there's n- not really much point in picking Folks. I think he's a good. I think he's a good. He's, um, I don't. I, I don't. I don't think the England team see it like that. If they thought he was a good enough batter to be in that team, I think he'd have played already. They've got for some reason they've 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 decided he isn't. Um, yeah, and uh, and I think I think it will be Bearstow um, and and Butler uh, and Mo and Ali coming in for Stokes. Fair enough. Well, uh, that leaves Ali at seven, um, Bess at eight, uh, Broad and Wood at nine and ten, and then your eleven is what Leach or Anderson if they decide to go for a third. Yeah, I, I, I suspect they'll rotate through those those pace bowlers as well, won't they? Um, nobody wants to play three three tests as a fast bowler. 
in Sri Lanka. Um, yeah, that's England. That's England. Shall we move on to the interview? I mean, you're not with us for the interview, Ross, but um, would you like to move on anyway? Yep. As, as I said, uh, you should find us at The Cricket Pod on Twitter and Instagram and really enjoy this interview. Jack, was, uh, was he a great guest? It was fantastic. Uh, yeah, like, like, like I said, what, 15 minutes ago or something in, in the intro, uh, we, we cover such an eclectic range of topics that there'll be something that you'll, be, you'll be interested in, I, I have no doubt. And if you like cricket, probably lots of things you'll be interested in. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll get on with that now. Today, we are joined by a man who's a filmmaker, author, podcaster, analyst, one-time general manager, blogger, and a YouTuber. Welcome to the podcast, the one and only Jared Kimber. How are you doing? Well, I didn't have to say that intro, so I'm going fine. We've got you on the show to talk about a range of Jared Kimber-themed topics. I think we'll start with probably your most recent podcasting work uh, on your Double Century podcast. You've just completed the second season, um, which over five episodes told the story of Basil D'Oliveira and Cricket's uh, history with race. Um, that's quite. I, mean, I think that's a good place to start. That's an interesting story. Can you tell us a little bit about Basil, uh, Basil D'Oliveira and, and why his story is so important to the game? Yeah, I... I kind of, I think the first season of Double Century, I just did like individual episodes. So, you know, took a player or took a story or took a theme and sort of did it in in 20 to 25 minutes. And when I got to the second season, I was was thinking, it'd be great to actually fully flesh out some of these topics a little bit more. And I was thinking, what I need is something I can write up all in one go that I kind of know a little bit about. And I thought, well, Basil D'Oliveira kind of makes sense because you can't do it in one episode because his life was ridiculous um, uh, and should not have existed. Um, I mean, even if you use one minute for every year of his uh, life, he was probably, you know, he probably was still playing test cricket well into his forties and still lying about his age. So uh, there's a lot to cover there. And then um, I, while I started writing it, the black lives matter movement happened and the NBA protests and George Floyd and all those sorts of things happened. And I thought maybe it is a, better situation if I use my time uh, to sort of match up what happened with Basil D'Oliveira to what is happening through the history of racing cricket, because it is such a weird thing. So Basil D'Oliveira is born in South Africa. He's Cape colored. Uh, That is not using colored as a racial slur. That's how they refer to themselves um, in in that part of the world. Um, And he was an extraordinary cricketer. We think when he played club cricket in South Africa, because we don't know, because he wasn't allowed to play against anyone who wasn't, who didn't look like him. The closest he ever got back in those days to playing a really good standard of cricket is he was supposed to be playing against an unofficial West Indies team captained by um, by Frank Worrell. And, and sadly, the uh, South African government probably saw that coming and went, wait a minute, this could be bad PR. Um, <laughs> if all these black West Indians turn up and play against our, our black and coloured players. So no, we're not allowing that. Well, what we know is, and I suppose we know this now, is with Ashwell Prince and Vernon Philander, um, and uh, I mean, there's tons of them, uh, uh, you know, Cape Coloured cricketers are extraordinary and probably have been almost the backbone of um, South African um, uh, non-white cricketers over the last, what, 10, 15 years. Uh, they keep finding incredible Cape Coloured cricketers. So obviously that was a real hotspot for cricket, but uh, because he, he wasn't allowed to play, we didn't know this. And all we knew was... Uh, if you look at the old records, you know, occasionally he would he would make 100 when the rest of the batsmen would make like minus, minus seven in the innings around him. Or, or he'd take all the wickets in an in innings. And there was clearly this incredible talent. 
but he was going to become a printer because uh, there was no money in him playing cricket in South Africa. And he just sent a bunch of letters to famous English people, really. Anyone of note, <laughs> anyone posh, he probably sent a bunch to the MCC. I don't think we have access to all of his letters, but it sounds like he just went on a letter writing campaign as he was contemplating retirement. Uh, but, you know, he was probably, my guess is l- late 20s, early 30s at this point, realized he was at the peak of his game. And eventually those letters started to get filtered out across uh, the UK. And um, one of them makes, a, you know, a club team in Lancashire who was supposed to be picking Wes Hall. But in, I think, you know, uh, maybe the biggest transfer um, moment in um, in Lancashire history, Wes Hall doesn't end up playing um, uh, for, for, for that team. He, he goes off to um, Accrington Stanley with Bumble. Uh, in fact, and uh, so they need a replacement at the last minute and they just take a flyer on this, I want to say young South African, but they had no idea how old he was. They had no idea how good he was. Uh, anyone who's ever played club cricket in England suddenly has an Afghanistani or an Australian guy uh, who claims to have, you know, been on the, uh, you know, virtually a first class cricketer and then they turn up to your club and you're just like, well, what, you know, <laughs> you, do you mean you played it once on EA Sports or something? <laughs> Um, that could have happened with Basil Delavira. I mean, realistically, we didn't know that much about him. He hadn't been tested. No one knew what the, the, the standard was of this cricket he was dominating. He could have been dominating old ladies uh, for, all the, for all everyone knew. Uh, but he turns up uh, and uh, he plays cricket in Lancashire. And it's quite clear, I think, within about three to four weeks uh, that he is a top-level uh, talent, uh, starts dominating cricket in the Lancashire Leagues. And you've got to remember, Lancashire Leagues are... Uh, it's as about, about as strong as as uh, club cricket could be, probably, possibly ever, but certainly at that point. Aren't there a couple of um, players who are over, playing as overseas in the Lancashire League around this time who basically went on to make test debuts or, or, or called up for their test team in England um, oh, yeah. directly from Lancashire League cricket? <laughs> I mean, maybe not directly, but... I mean, I've already said Wes Hall. So Wes Hall goes on to be basically the prototype fast bowler. You know, uh, he's... Before him, fast bowlers tended to be short. Um, uh, and before him, uh, we we hadn't really matched someone very quick with very tall who could hit you regularly. Um, Jack Gregory was probably one of the few, Tom Richardson very early on, but we didn't really have fast bowlers. So when you think of what a fast bowler is now, Wiz Hall is really where it all started. So he's playing club cricket in Lancashire and he's the one that Basil obviously um, ends up replacing. So he was playing, but he'd already taken a bunch of test wickets. Uh, one of the other overseas pros was Sobers. Um, so you get the idea of the talent that was in those competitions. So for Basil Dolivera to shine, and I think he ended up, he outscored Sobers that year, if I remember, or maybe out-averaged him and took an absolute truck of wickets. He obviously didn't end up being as good a bowler as Sobers, but his batting certainly stood up. Um, and Sobers was in the peak of his game, whereas Dolivera was, uh, was, you know, past his best and had never played that much cricket against good players. And then, of course, the next funny thing is that Lancashire is like, oh, he's a Sunday slogger. We we don't see this guy as being a real cricketer because he played too attacking. So you ended up having to move to Worcester. In those days, you had to move to a county to to play. I don't know if you know the story about the old um, Bart King, the old USA cricketer. He couldn't play county cricket because he didn't live in the UK. So he had to be offered some, apparently, and this is the story, and I, let's just go with it being true because it's great, uh, <laughs> that a widower who was a member at one of the county clubs offered to marry him so he could come over and play <laughs> And those stories aren't that rare. Like that happened occasionally. Like you would get a cricketer from Argentina, um, from Australia, from America, 
and you, you would be off it. But but we, by, I think by the time Basil came along, he could move to Worcester. But he had to play for, he had to play in Worcester for like three years uh, to qualify, which it's just ridiculous. Which obviously is an incredible situation to begin with. Anyway, in those three years, that's the period where everyone realizes how good he is. He starts playing first-class cricket games uh, for a Commonwealth eleven. He goes back to South Africa, uh, plays against, uh, I think, uh, Zimbabwe, which was Rhodesia at the time, a few other games. But by this point, people can tell he's quite good. Starts off in county cricket, clearly a gun uh, batsman. His bowling is, uh, I don't know know how old you guys are, but Mark Elam light. Um, Uh, We're aware of Mark Elam. (laughs) Uh, he's yeah. in the cricket conscience. I don't know if I could picture him or or, 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 or uh, regale you with any tales of Mark Elam, but yeah. we're aware of the the being that is. I think that I, I think it, yeah, maybe Darren Stevens without the wickets would be, maybe be another <laughs> way of putting it. There's, there's nothing wrong with Basil's bowling. In fact, he took a, he took some good county wickets, but I don't think you would have to spend much time looking at his bowling to go. That's probably not going to transfer to Test level. He's probably not going to get a lot of wickets on the on the whacker bowling uh, like that. I think he was probably a better bowler when he was younger. Uh, but by the time he makes it, we're talking, he's at least mid-30s by the time he's a prospect, probably late 30s by the time he's a, a realistic prospect. Any bowling athleticism he had, uh, I think probably left around the time he discovered alcohol in the UK and uh, perhaps started to to swell slightly in the middle. Um, I think he was <laughs> Tail as old as time itself. Exactly. Um, but he could bowl. And anyway, so he, he goes on to play for England, starts off incredibly. I think he averaged near 50 after 10 tests. Uh but but had a bit of a rough patch against the West Indies. And that all leads into he's got five tests against England in the UK uh, to prove that he's good enough to play against South Africa. And that's kind of where everything goes to shit because you then have a situation where clearly he's in England's best 15 prospects. And somehow he, he, he makes a very good score in the second innings against Australia uh, when no one else could make runs in a very high chase, I think they were chasing 400. He comes in when they're about five for 100, um, makes a nod out, bats very well, takes a couple of handy wickets as well, uh, and gets dropped for the next test. Uh, and about this stage, it's quite clear that, I mean, now looking back on it, Peter Oborn's written a great book on it. There's been some other great uh, historians take a look at it. It seems now someone got to the MCC from the South African government. We don't know the full details of it, but clearly there was pressure there. There was also just the gentle, the, the, the normal gentleman pressure. You've got to understand that people who worked for, oh, not worked for the MCC, but uh, were involved with the MCC at that time, who were picking the England team, they wanted to be able to go and enjoy themselves in Cape Town and Johannesburg and Durban and Port Elizabeth. They didn't want to go there and be attacked by, you know, political operatives and have themselves smeared in the newspapers and all that sort of thing. Uh, and then there was, it was a really talented time for English cricket, but you got to remember how amateur everything was. There's some really good stuff about, they didn't know how fit the players were. Like players were coming back from injury. Uh, they they picked Basil D'Oliveira. I mean, I've just said that I don't think he was a bowler and he was picked as a frontline bowler in, in one of the tests against Australia. So if you picked someone who's not a very good bowler, if you picked Darren Stevens to bowl, uh, if you picked Mike Yardy, he was probably... More Mike Yardy as a seamer, I suppose, maybe Mike <laughs> You pick Mike Yardy to play in a test match as a seamer. Um, sorry, as a, as a frontline spinner. You, you're going to get what you expect from Mike Yardy. He probably won't go for many runs, but he's not going to take many wickets because he's Mike Yardy. And that's kind of where Basil's bowling was at that point. Then he gets dropped on the eve of the second test after everyone in the media talks down his previous test. And I go through that on the podcast. It doesn't make sense doesn't make sense you would drop someone who was averaging 48 with the bat um who'd taken a couple of wickets with the ball when he uh from that previous test 
Uh, he then goes off though. He's in terrible form, Basil, and he doesn't make any runs for ages. They have a they have a squad for South Africa where you have to. So in those days, you basically had to say whether you were available because not everyone was available. Because some people had jobs. Um, some people didn't want to tour. Like it was such a, a random thing. So literally, the selectors would send you a letter and say uh, there will there'll be a test series at the end of the year. Good sir, would you be kindly enough to let us know your availability for said tour? Uh, and they never even contacted Basil after he was still averaging near fifty. He could still bowl a bit. Um, and he made uh, you know a not out a, you know a seventy or eighty odd not out in his last test. So at this point, it would be hard to say that there wasn't politics involved. I've been lucky enough to talk to some of the journalists who were involved back in the day, and they they basically said that they just listened to the powers that be because the powers that be you know be selectors and MCC had never really lied to them before. There would be no reason to, but the stakes had changed, and I think the journalists hadn't really understood that there was there was something different going on this time. Once he wasn't in, if you were a cricket journalist in that time and he, his name wasn't in the top 30, you'd have to be like, I mean, he, he's either slept with someone's wife or, <laughs> um, or, or, uh, or there's something, uh, you know, something rotten in Denmark here. So he doesn't get picked. It's quite clear he's not going to get picked for South Africa. But then there's a, a bunch of injuries. I can't remember now. You'd have to go back to the podcast. But I think England used something like, 18, 19, 20 players in that series against Australia. And they're not getting smashed. They lose that first test that Basil played. But I think they draw the rest of the test. And they're just random guys are coming in, coming out. Uh, there's a few, there's, there's some injuries. They're trying every all-rounder in the country that isn't Basil de Oliveira. Um, there's, um, uh, what's his name? The, the guy with the fat ass, uh, great bowler's ass from Lancashire, plays his last test. Uh, you know, they, and he's got a bowling average, test bowling average of 21 or something, plays one average test, they dump him. Just, there's just lots of these sorts of weird, it was terrible selection from beginning to end. And that gets, doesn't sound like much change for 40 years either. Well, I mean, if you go up until Darren Pattinson, it's basically up until Darren Pattinson that keeps happening. In the <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so then you get this weird situation where they have a couple of injuries um, and Basil Dolavira suddenly gets sort of brought into the, the team for the last test. Which doesn't make any sense because they've already said he's not going to South Africa. You know, they've they've already decided that his county form, which was dire, I think he averaged 15 in one month. Um, and you've got to remember in those days they played 150 county games every month. So, you know, he had plenty of opportunities. You know, there was a, it was a long period where he hadn't made any runs. He did keep taking wickets though, randomly. Anyway, they decided, I think it was Cowdery decided that they needed a all-rounder who could bowl a bit at the Oval. He played at the Oval earlier in the year, realised that the ball was nipping around a little bit and that if they could get a bowling all-rounder in, eventually Basil Dolivera doesn't even come in as the the all-rounder. He comes in to replace a batsman because, and this is a story from Peter Oborn's book, which is great. I forget the name of the opening batsman. The opening batsman had played one or two tests, realised he probably wasn't that good and thought, if I pull out of this test... I'm a very good chance of being first pick selection for South Africa. That's how the story goes. We've never, I don't think we've ever, ever had it confirmed, but it's a brilliant story. If for no other reason than that guy never played for England again after that. Oh, <laughs> <bad>. uh, yeah. <laughs> and so Basil comes in, they rejig the batting order. He then bats. He, it's a bit of a scrappy innings in, in some ways, but it's a bit of a scrappy innings where he makes 170 um, or 167. or uh, Good enough for Dom Sibley. Yeah, exactly. 159. I can't remember. It's a big score is my point. Um, and of course, this makes everything so much weirder. So now, had he not played, England probably could have just said, he hasn't made a run in county cricket. There's, we don't care. 
had he not played, you could have said, look, you guys didn't complain when he wasn't in the, in the 30 men that we contacted. Uh, he's not in our plans anymore. We think he's a good cricketer, but he, he's not there. There's plenty of normal cricket chat they could have done. But being that he just smashed 100 against Australia, um, the, the argument then becomes weaker and weaker and weaker. And he doesn't get picked for the squad. That is the first time that some journalists, obviously the Guardian um, and, and the sort of more left-leaning uh, journalists start to go, there's something uh, wrong here. The CLR James, Lyra Constantine, the sort of socialist voices of cricket, uh, as few and far between as they were back then, <laughs> sort of stand up and go, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. I, I did big analysis on the squad. I think you could have made really good, strong arguments for him not being in the squad uh, based on everything. If, if you wanted to, they had a bunch of old guys uh, in the field, and Basil was—he was probably forty-one by this <laughs> point. Uh, and they had some guys that were just not fit at all. Uh, if you wanted a younger option, and of course the, the player that they ended up going for did go on to captain England, um, but he had failed um, in that same uh, Asher series. At least he would be able to run around in the field. Uh, they also went for another bowler who I did a deep dive on him. Very similar kind of bowler. He was never, uh, Tom Cartwright was never going to take any wickets in South Africa. He played a test in South Africa before, hadn't taken there before. He wasn't going to be, I wouldn't have thought he wouldn't have been a much better bowler than Basil anyway. And he wasn't as good a batsman as Basil. So, it, it, and Ken Barrington came back into the side. He's obviously an all-time great. So it makes sense that he was left out if you, put it in that perspective but the truth is that he wasn't in the original 30 they were never going to take him to south africa anyway that's the bigger the biggest slight there Oops, shut up phone uh <laughs> and then um and then and then you, you're in a situation where tom cartwright pulls out now this is again we don't have the full facts of this and tom cartwright never really spoke up tom cartwright at various times basically said he wasn't fit enough that he didn't want to leave his son for a whole summer uh, for a whole winter uh, that he had problems with the fact that Basil couldn't go in the first place and apartheid uh, from a political standpoint. Uh, I reckon it's possibly a combination of all three. And he just thought, he also might've just thought, I'm not going to take any wickets there. My bowling is useless in South Africa, uh, which is what I would have thought if I was him. But um, I, I think it's a possibility that all those sort of things come together. He pulls out and then suddenly Basil, who's not, and they just said Basil wasn't an all-rounder anymore. They were considering him only a batsman. Suddenly Basil then replaces a bowler in the side, which tells you everything that you kind of need to know. The, 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 there was enough kickback from the press and, and the fans, I think, at that point after they didn't select him. He then, of course, he is selected and straight away the South African um, president calls off the tour. Uh, president and Prime Minister, I should remember that, but I can't remember half the names in this. Anyway, the tour is cancelled. It becomes a very, very big thing. It basically becomes the impetus for South Africa being kicked out of cricket. Now, what I talk about in the podcast is that Australia still toured there after that. Uh, uh, there was supposed to be another tour to Australia after that. Uh, there was uh, the Women's World Cup. was. Uh, they tried to host one of them in South Africa in the 70s. And before that, South Africa didn't play against the West Indies, India or Pakistan uh, because, you know, of the whole they didn't have uh, enough white people in their team, which would be 11, I suppose, for South Africa at that point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, realistically, Basil was kind of in the middle of all this, and I suppose that's why I thought it was such a good story, in that he very much tells you the story of race in cricket. But it's not a straightforward... It's not as straightforward as you would believe race in cricket to be. You would believe in a conservative sport run by the sorts of people who would listen to South African politicians of that time, that it would be 
yeah, cricket was racist, 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 slightly less racist now. And that's not how it was. You know, uh, you, you had you had uh, players of um, uh, darker skin playing for South Africa. You had a black West Indian play for Australia. You had Indians uh, play for England. Uh, it was a very, very confusing. You had the West Indies being, you know, ratified as a team. We're having seven, eight, nine um, black players playing uh, for them at times, even if they had the white captain. It's a really mixed messages throughout cricket of just like, well, if you're good enough and you can sell us tickets, we'd probably get you involved. Um, and then occasionally you would get the absolute opposite where you get Indigenous um, uh, cricketers from Australia all being called for chucking, uh, which is uh, quite handy that all Indigenous players um, seem to chuck when they bowl. Uh, and then you, and then you get other, uh, you know, um, uh, events like, you know, what happened with South African cricket. Uh, originally, you know, Ramji struggling to play for England. Uh, I, I, I just thought it was a really, if you compare it, American sport seems to have basically said nothing. It was just all white. And then we let one black guy in and then we fixed everything. Cricket was never like that. It just goes up and down and across. And the fact that the fact that Don Bradman has to be convinced to not let South Africa tour after Basil Oliveira is just a, an incredible moment, uh, really. And it's not just, it's not just, uh, you know, the, the, um, the white plays either. Obviously, West Indies spent, sent two rebel tours to South Africa. Uh, Garfield Tober said he would have played cricket in South Africa. He played in Rhodesia. Um, you know, so the, the whole sport had this sort of really interesting thing. And then, uh, you know, um, you know, in the future, I'll probably make an episode about West Indies cricket. It, it's been one of the most racist uh, cricket cultures b- between Asian players and black players at times. And, and I thought that Basil Oliveira allowed me to talk about a few different things, you know, the sort of the gentleman aspect of cricket, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to write a lovely man in England and hopefully one of them will let me play. And Oh, I'm really good at playing cricket in England, but I can't play for that County because I'm a slogger. Now I'm going to have to play for another County, but I'm going to have to sit there for uh, three years to prove myself. So it, it's an incredibly interesting story. And, you know, I'm, to be honest, to do the entire history of, of racing cricket over five episodes is uh, not exactly. <laughs> five series, not, maybe. Yeah. Five series. I mean, it, it would be, it would be a huge book if you if you were to write that book. But I wanted to give a flavour of how inconsistent and how crazy this day, you know, if you're listening to a commentary and Kuldeep Yadav comes on, someone is still going to call him a Chinaman, despite the fact that in 1933 in a Yorkshire newspaper, everyone went, just so you're all aware, guys, this is a racist term. And uh, <laughs> cricket is still using, you know, almost 90 years later. So uh, good times. Yeah, I mean, just very quickly, where where do you think we are now on on the racing? Because obviously, it's uh, the, well, the the series you put together is um, quite poignant in terms of what's going on in the world at the moment. So it would be interesting to get a, a quick take on where you think cricket stands on on race. You know, obviously there was the the issue with South Africa deciding not to take the knee in the recent England series, and I, don't know, I suppose in comparison with other sports, perhaps. I mean, it's, I mean, incredible that South African cricket of all places would not take a knee. Uh, I know that some of the players did. I think they probably made a mistake. I think the West Indian players are, have had enough. I think their treatment over the years, I think they're so sick and tired of casual racism, the West Indian players. So things like they're natural cricketers uh, when they're probably the smartest T20 players we've ever had. And I think that, you know, there's still a lot of things... There's a really interesting thing. There's a there's a charlatan who works in India who's a his name is Sad Guru, and I know that sounds like I'm taking a piss, but that's literally his name. He did a thing on cricket not that long ago where 
he said the difference between Brad Coley and Viv Richards was that Viv Richards wasn't very driven as a person. He was very laid back um, and he didn't have strong held beliefs. Whereas Virat Coley was a strong, mm. proud Indian man. And I was just like, um, are we still saying things like that? And I Same think, old tropes. Yeah. And I think that we're, and the, I think Vera is one of the most driven cricketers I've ever come across. I'm not sure he's more driven than Viv Richards, though. Um, I'm not sure he's more passionate about um, his community than Michael Holding is, or that many were standing in uh, than, than Jason Holder is either. So, I mean, Viv, I think- Rich- Viv Richards batted without a helmet to make a statement about how unafraid yeah. <laughs> of the opposition he was. Uh, that, that's, that's not really a laid back approach. That's about as confrontational as you can be. He, he ch- choked people in the change room for being racist against him. He wore raster bands. I mean, I think we know where he's, you know, and, and so the fact that that's still there and that still, sort of still exists, I think shows we've got a long way to go. I think that a lot of cricket's problem is that it's not, if you look at South Africa, and I, I'm doing a big project on, on this at the moment that will come out shortly, but cr- cricket South Africa have the quota system, which is to help with racial problems. The bigger problem within South African cricket is not a racial problem. It's it's a class problem in that all their cricketers come from one particular class, which is if you can afford to or be found and thrown uh, through a posh school, you're going to play cricket for South Africa. It doesn't matter if you're white or black. If you don't go to a good school, the chances are that unless you're related to another cricketer or you're Pakistani, you're not going to play cricket for South Africa. So... That is a huge problem, and that is not a problem just in South Africa. That is right across the board. You know, there are whole states of India that have never produced first-class cricketers, um, you know, in the East because they're not seen as ethnically Indian in the same way that the rest of Indians are. So there's a huge problem right across sport and England – sorry, right across cricket that England has. It's not just a race problem that cricket is fighting. I think there's there's a class problem, um, and there's also a – we have this inherent thing in cricket where we think that – people only play the sport if we always know that they've played the sport. So Ireland can't be a cricket nation to us because we don't know that Ireland played cricket, despite the fact that Ireland have a 250-year history with cricket, right? The fight, despite the fact that the USA don't do cricket, despite the fact that they have one of the longest international histories with cricket. So it's not just a race problem. We have this way of dividing in cricket, which probably comes from, you know, the, the colonial natures of the sport where, you know, women can't play, um, ethnic people can't play, Poor people can't play. This country doesn't play because they're not part of the Commonwealth. And I, I think we have learned now that it is absolute nonsense, but we maybe don't have these structures all the way through the sport. So it's not so much that we have a problem with race. It's that, that the ICC isn't finding a way to um, make Brazilian women's cricket incredibly the most important story in the world. I mean, no, every, every cricket writer in the world, you guys, ICC should be contacting you with like representatives from Brazilian cricket and Thai cricket and, you know, Nepalese cricket and saying, can you talk about all these people over and over again? Here's our captain, you know, uh, he, here's our coach. Here are people involved. So it's not even just race. We have this way in cricket of dividing everyone into haves and have nots and they're proper cricket people and they're not proper cricket people. And so you then throw normal everyday life racism on top of that and everything gets more messy. But that's the brilliant thing about cricket is it's always fucking shambolic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, Well, the word shambolic brings us quite nicely, actually, onto, um, uh, well, governance, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) uh, You're quite quite familiar with the the subjects, having... um, Brought out a film, Death of a Gentleman, about um, ICC governance. Uh, we spoke with uh, Dan Norcross last week, and he had a few ideas about 
how we might uh, arrange the test cricket calendar. Obviously, in the um, in the shadow of uh, comments recently about the World Test Cricket Championship and whether it should go on, uh, how how would you see uh, the test calendar being arranged, sort of to to get the most out of out of test cricket for well, all nations, I suppose. Essentially, it needs to be a league. It needs to be a promotion and relegation league. And the league then has to sell the rights as one whole package. And out of those rights, you pay the players and the coaches and the umpires and the facilities um, uh, fees to all the different countries around the world. And then we have guaranteed 10 to 20 years of test cricket, no matter how much interest drops off it. Any other system that anyone comes up with will struggle with the very basic thing of why would a young West Indian cricketer spend all of his time developing his himself to um, to play test cricket? There's no reason. Why would a young Sri Lankan cricketer do it? Why would a young Afghanistani cricketer do it? You you actually first thing you need to do is make sure that all test cricketers are paid correctly, uh, and that they are still thinking it is a viable income for them. And the second thing is that. You cannot sell individual rights. TV boards will screw you over every chance they have. If you're trying to sell New Zealand West Indies to Sky, Sky didn't even show it. That's on YouTube. Yeah. Sky, <laughs> Sky just eventually just went, eh, it's not worth it. It's not worth it for us to, to, to do that. Sky aren't in that situation if it's all sold as an entire package. It's just like, do you want the ashes? Well, then you have to buy every single bit of cricket in the world, right? That is where the future is. Obviously, cricket TV... Uh, which will be, you know, like MB, NBA TV or MLB TV in the future is where they should be going. But they can't even do that until they until the ICC owns the rights. Once you get to that point and the ICC starts saying, okay, well, a player from Bangladesh, you know, their top-ranked player will make $700,000 a year. And a player from Australia, their top-ranked player will make $700,000 a year. And a, anyone in Division One gets this amount of money and this sort of thing. There's nothing to stop Cricket Australia still paying the players for their image rights on top of that. There's nothing to stop Cricket Australia saying to Mitchell Stark, we're going to give you an extra $2 million on top of this because we don't want you to play IPL or the 100. And it, all those things are still on the table for the rich boards if they want to do it. But what that allows for is the ability to for Test Cricket to always be worth money. You shouldn't be playing Test matches where you're losing money. And boards are still doing that. If that continues to happen, people just won't play Test Cricket anymore. That's how we solve the problem. Now, the reason this won't happen is the boards would have to, well, basically the three main boards would have to make slightly less money. Although I would argue they will make far more money into the future doing this sort of plan, but they would have to make slightly less money in, in the, in, in the short term. Uh, and they would have to let the ICC organize things. And they don't really want the ICC management organizing anything. And that's where all this falls down. So instead of doing that, we will continue with the, uh, you know, fucking shambolic um, nature of how cricket is run, uh, where you have T20 uh, leagues where players don't get paid. You have test matches where no one turns up and no one even pays for the rights. Um, and uh, you have players who are looking at the game and going, why would I ever play for my country when I can play, uh, when I can make somewhere between 50 and 100 times more playing for a franchise? And until that changes, we're going to continue to have our problems. Do you think anyone actually has the vision to make that happen within the existing governance structures of cricket? Because, I mean, at, at, at the moment, I mean, the BCCI is going to make money um, probably far into the future. The ECB is going to make money whilst Test Cricket is viable. And because of the ashes, they've got, they've got something to, they've got a context to build their test schedule around. So they'll be able to make money for at least a decade, probably more. And Cricket Australia 
um, probably do as well, although they seem to kind of have some management issues that mean that they, they end up losing money in the end. But they, they do have a product that is sellable to um, TV companies uh, yeah. or broadcasters. Um, how, how do you bring those people to the table to talk about how you save Sri Lankan cricket or West Indian cricket um, or how, how you make them viable as um well, I, I think the easiest way is is to basically go to those guys and go, if Sri Lanka can't afford to play you, and and you, so if you look at, look at it from a, a, a total point, when I talk about the, the rights packages, right? India needs Sri Lanka, West Indies, New Zealand, Zimbabwe, South Africa, to two of them, because they make an absolute buttload of money when they play those teams. And unless they're going to do a 12-month IPL or an eight-month IPL, they're going to have to find other ways to make income. You can't just play England and Australia over and over again because it would it, it would devalue the, the 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 content that you're eventually pushing. So what you say is, realistically, cricket it was, had its biggest growth with the most teams that were were playing it. Right? If you continue to say uh, that you will only that you will do bilateral agreements with these teams, these teams are just going to keep sinking. If you want Sri Lanka to find the next Murali, and if you want New Zealand to continue to punch amongst it, up, up, uh, above their weight, and you do because you want better TV products, you want to be able to beat the other teams, you want them to actually do something, then it, it will make more money in, in the long run. India is still going to be the richest team. England's still going to be the second richest team. And Australia's still going to be the third richest team. No, there's, no, there's no scheme I can come up with that would stop those three yeah, things yeah, from yeah. happening, right? Because they're the three biggest media markets. So the best thing to do is don't, doesn't everyone want to make more money from this so that in the future, I, I put it this way. If I had them at the table, I'd be like in 10 years time, you don't know if half these test teams are going to be playing test cricket, which means that you can't make money off them because you make an absolute fortune from putting a test match on, uh, on England, Australia or India on the TV. It makes a fortune. Yeah. I, having- I, 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 I think we're probably in agreement. I mean, the only, the only thing I wonder, and, and this is sort of a trend in the way people watch sports actually. Um, I wonder if the ECB, for instance, would pay Sri Lanka to play test matches against them. Um, and knowing full well that they're not going to be a contest and that England will batter them just to put out a product, which might not bother many England fans. But I, I, I think there's a trend, probably most observable in football, actually, that, that people watch the game, more people, more people will watch the game if there are more goals, regardless of who is scoring the goals. So people aren't watching um, Barcelona v Ibar uh, because they want Barcelona v Ibar to be a contest. They want to see five goals. And if they're all scored by Barcelona, it doesn't matter. And I wonder if people would watch England v Sri Lanka's annual test uh, or annual test 11 and watch that that pumping and, and not really care from a, from an English broadcasting point of view. Um, oh, I, I hope all not. I can say is looking at numbers online, close test series and interesting test series, Trump. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, 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 I mean, Australia is one of the few markets I would say that's different, but that is because the Australian cricket fans are more like football fans anyway than than I think yeah. uh, other cricket fans are. I don't think that's a viable long term. No, I agree. Model. I would t- completely yeah. agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying, but realistically, if you're going to pay them to come out, why not actually set up a situation where you're helping support their cricket and grow? The, the thing about exactly, international yeah. cricket is that it is a collective of all these organisations together, right? If you have an opportunity to save them and to build them and grow them. So the way I look at it from an IPL point of view is if I can, if I'm running the IPL, I want the next AB de Villiers 
He is a marketable asset and I want the next Andre Russell and I want all those people. How do I set it up so that that next Andre Russell actually picks cricket and is available and he gets picked up by a talent scout when he's 12 and um, at 15 gets good coaching in, in, in Jamaica or whatever it is. Now they might be able to do that by doing, um, uh, you know, doing like football academy style things. They might be able to do it that way, but there's a really easy other way to do it, which is actually fund <laughs> the national bodies without you really losing any money. Yeah, You don't even have to spend your own money. There is a way of doing that. Those are such good South Africa and um, West Indies. And how many Sri Lankan T20 stars have there been in the last 10 years, right? There've been none. And that's because they haven't had their own league. Let me tell you, they have some of the most talented T20 players. They've got that young um, leg spinner who's coming through the all-rounder at the moment. They had Shanaka, who should have been smashing attacks all around the world. They had you know, a couple of Kusels who would have been really good um, T20 players as well. They have the, the, the talent, but because there was no league there to develop it, that means it didn't get to the major leagues. You, you need to be in a situation where that doesn't happen. And I just think that if you can help fund all these bodies, and I would be doing the same with associate cricket, how much goodwill and good press does the big bash get out of every time they find another player in Pakistan or Afghanistan or Nepal? So that is part of your narrative at this point. Keep going. The NBA yeah. does all these things because the NBA understands it. They understand yeah, yeah, yeah. how these things work. And because no one's in charge of cricket, it's not that any it's not that there are idiots working at the ICC that don't know this. The people who run the ICC on a day-to-day basis, they're sitting there pulling their hair out, going, Oh my God, we we have a you know a Nepalese pinup star here. Let's do something with him. Let's get these people out there. And no one's doing anything with them. And and I think that is that is what the problem is. If you can prop up. Uh, the test playing nations first. And then secondly, the, the second best 10, 15 teams under that, you're in a completely different situation then. And you should be able to guarantee the income of test cricket, of one day cricket for a long time forward, make the quality of cricket better. And then all the really, po- all the really rich leagues will steal those players for their own leagues. <laughs> yeah. Or, or at the least you've got a more marketable product because the next Muralitharan is playing yeah. against you. Uh, and that, I mean, like Sri Lanka would, would, were, were box office in the, in the UK for, the early 2000s because they had Muralithran. <laughs> people are still talking about Wakaramozin from the 90s. Do you know what I mean? People remember those sorts of things in cricket culture. And football is a different sport, to be fair, you know, in many different ways. But I do understand what, what you're saying. But I just think that cricket is different because it's an international sport and you end up with those rivalries over over a point. So, you know, Rabada versus um, Jofra is going to be a thing for 10 years that's going to be a really interesting relationship. And, you know, Rabada's already pissed off that Joff gets more, um, you know, better publicity than him. So the next time he plays England, he's going to try and fucking nut everyone, isn't he? So we have those kinds of things in cricket. We have, you know, uh, you know, everyone hates England. So there's a whole England thing, but then you have these individual rivalries on these, on these different levels. And I, I just think that you would be silly to give that up because that is actually, that is the reason that test cricket has, you know, um, continue to this point. So if you let it phase off and you just pay, and you know, if you pay Sri Lanka to bring out a, a development squad every time and they all get smashed in the face, I just think that that is what could kill Test Cricket more than this other plan that I've come up with, which wouldn't make anyone poorer uh, and would actually probably ultimately make everyone richer and everyone better. But they won't do it because they would have to give up power. Yeah, I think that's quite a good summary. <laughs> yeah, very comprehensive. Um, yeah, a, a long, a long way to go, I think, for uh, the people uh, managing cricket to to get it right. But you know, maybe with your your uh, your large dossier on their desk, things um, things could change. Um, 
Wait, one, but one, one aspect where cricket has actually come on quite a lot in uh, in the last ten years or so is in analytics, uh, which is uh, another um, well close uh, subject close to your heart. And uh, I listened to um, to you on the Effectively Wild podcast last year, and it was um, it was interesting listening to you describing different aspects of cricket, especially relating to analytics analytics to people who pretty much had no idea about cricket, and that actually made cricket. To someone who knows cricket, sound completely fucking insane. <laughs> right? How how ridiculous is cricket as a sport? So I, th- I think um, cricket Australia, cricket Australia didn't get involved with analytics for a long time. India had some incredible people like Venky and Nathan Lehman got involved with England, and cricket Australia didn't have a full time analyst at all. Um, they had a video video analyst, and they were taking stuff for free from a guy called Krishna Tunga who's this incredible guy he sent me three emails while I've been talking to you. Um, uh, and uh, Prolific. yeah, he, they, you know, once he gets on a roll on something, he's just an incredible human being. So they didn't have anything. So they basically went out and outsourced it. Recently they got involved with um, Google uh, um, uh, uh, cricket fans who worked at Google and just said, what can you come up with? But before that they actually hired a company and the company came in and they, they the company straight away, the first thing they said was test cricket is we're going to call it the monster. It is so hard to analyze test cricket because there are so many different facets to it. And there is so, you know, a third day pitch in at the Wacker is, you know, a different species of a, of a third day pitch to something in Guyana. Um, a first day pitch in those two places aren't even the same sport at times. You know, and once you start to look into deterioration and the way that different wickets deteriorate, the way that different balls deteriorate, the way that uh Jew comes in in certain places and doesn't come in. I think that was my favourite bit, actually, when you were saying you can have the Jew factor in the evening, which means sometimes certain bowlers can't bowl. But then you can also have it in the morning if it's a, if the game starts early. And it's just like, tell, tell that to, to someone who doesn't like cricket. You can see why it puts people off. Yeah, I mean, it, when, you, when you start to factor in all those sorts of things, it's, it's crazy how many different layers there are to cricket and how you put them in. So re- really good example. So Dan Christian... He's a baseball fan and he'll talk to me about analytics a bit, but he's, he always holds back. And one thing I always, I'll put up an article and then about three days later, I'll get a message from him going, if, if he's mentioned it, especially I'll get a message from him going, yeah, but you know why I do that? And I was like, so the last one was, I think I had him as the, one of the slowest scorers against spin in the world in T20 cricket. And he goes, yeah, but I'm just holding my wicket to the end. And I'm like, but mate, you can also bash spinners, just bash spinners as well. But you have to understand that in his head, he's thinking, I can score at 20 runs and over off seam bowling for the last four overs. That's how Dan Christian thinks. And to be fair, he's done it a few times. So who, who's to question him at this point? <laughs> My point is, yeah, but mate, you can also score at 15 runs and over off spin for the four overs before that. Um, and and so he's still thinking about from that point of view. So when you, I remember uh, talking to someone about, I want to say Ollie Rayner. No, who's the Kent off spinner? Uh, you guys should know from a couple of years ago. Oh God, why have I forgotten his name? Anyway, he had a good good couple of years. And I was saying to Gareth Batty when we were working for TalkSport, I was saying, what happened to this guy? Like you look at his numbers for a couple of years there. He did really well. And he goes, do me a favor, check if those were the years he played with Doug Bollinger. And I was hmm. like, the fuck's that got to do with anything? Doug's not fucking helping him. And he goes, left arm. And the minute he said it, it completely came together. And I suddenly understood what he was saying. Essentially, he was suggesting that that the couple of years that this guy had been good at off spin happened to overlap with the fact that Doug Bollinger was giving him footmarks to bowl into 
every game. And Doug Bollinger, he's not just a left-arm seamer, but a heavy-footed left-arm seamer. He, you, you know, he's a big, heavy guy, but he also hits the wicket very hard. You know, you've got Jimmy Anderson-type guys who run in, and then you've got Doug Bollinger guys who dig, it, dig a trench. It, it didn't quite overlap, but the point is that you could easily pick an off-spinner like some some off spinner you've got in your team, right? And, and you you in county cricket, and he takes eighty wickets one year and seventy wickets the next year, and you go, "This guy is great. Let's get him straight into the team." And you don't look at the fact that um, you know he's got two left arm um, seamers uh, that he's been bowling at the other end, and he's just been ripping in the wickets because he's been bowling into footmarks from almost day one. Factoring that into a fucking algorithm is like, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And then what about if the one wicket doesn't get footmarks? Do you know what I mean? Like as well, it's not just as simple as how that works. And then Wayne Parnell, my guess is, and I'm just throwing this out there, my guess is Wayne Parnell doesn't create the same kind of footmarks that Dougie Bowler does, right? Uh, so you straight away you've got all these different things to to think about, and we're not even close to that yet. Crickfizz is, well, I, it's growing at least, but Crickfizz is maybe 15 or 20 people. When Moneyball, uh, by the time Sabermetrics and Moneyball came along. You're talking about thousands of people going through this and everyone going off in their own little directions. We don't have access to Hawkeye data. Most people don't have access to ball-by-ball ball data unless they know how to how to source it. And so there's probably a collection of 150 to 200 people in the world looking at this sort of stuff at the moment. And the most interesting data is Hawkeye data, and we don't have that. The second most interesting data will be spatial tracking, and no cricket grounds do that yet. So... We're not even at the level where we can get to where basketball and the NFL and baseball is. Uh, and we have a more complicated game uh, because uh, I, I think, to, you know, to paraphrase Nathan Lehman talking about Graham Swan's, all of Graham Swan's problems is, if you can't tell me what the pitch is going to do, what's, what's the fucking point of you? And that's kind of true. We can't tell a player exactly what the pitch is going to do. And I had a situation with St. Lucia where I went around and asked all the local players and groundsmen, is this pitch going to change? We played here for two games, it's going to change absolutely no way will it change <laughs> the last two games we had scored 210 and 230 or something right huge scoring pitch uh we lost one of those games so another team scored over 200 against us to chase um and i think even even the other game uh, the team didn't uh team made some runs absolutely no point that pitch is not going to change i go to the meeting and say i've talked to all the locals the locals tell me the pitch won't change darren sammy tells me the pitch is not going to change we're going to trust darren sammy we'll go out there and we will roll for 80. Now, I'm not saying those guys were wrong uh, and the groundsman was wrong, but some it could have just been we got rolled for 80 for whatever reason. But try going back to the players with a straight face for the next game after that has happened. You've done yeah. all the research. Everything is right as far as you can tell. But the, the, the grass is a living organism. It doesn't give a shit about your research in a way that baseball parks and basketball stadiums and NFL stadiums, we know a even when there are variables within those stadiums, and we know there are be better stadiums to hit home runs in, and we know there are better stadiums to run the ball and throw the ball and all those different sports, but the fucking grass doesn't change it. Do you know what I mean? Like It literally doesn't change it, and that's where we are, and that's why it's so complicated. To sort of follow up on that a little bit then, so some teams, have, some teams are looking into this, and I think probably most notably England, because I think they are the team that that are most uh, ensconced in the Crickviz, uh, Hawkeye ball tracking analytics community if you like is there anything they have tried that has actually worked because you wouldn't know on the just looking at results over the last decade say that that england have what appears on the face of it to be a significant advantage over over at least some of their competitors or or, or or have they in fact actually been been a lot more successful than than it appears or that it feels from from an england fan's point of view 
But they went. They won a World Cup after. Oh, um, they did win the World Cup. I, I'm sorry. I, I meant. I meant that in, to frame that in the in the context of Test cricket, uh, the monster. Um, obviously, obviously, we can see the developments in the in the one day team, and maybe that's where they focus their energy because, as you say, there's only 15 people working on this, or, yeah. or maybe 20, and and maybe that was the decision they made to to look at the white ball game over. The... Um, they certainly. It, it's a tricky one. I think. I think their plans are really good to opposition batsmen. But that's a hard one to tell because you would have to see their, what they were going to bowl beforehand. Does that make yes, sense? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I, There's no counterfactual, basically. It's very rare I'm watching them bowl to a batsman in test cricket and I'm like, why are they doing this? So, for instance, uh, when they bowled to Faf Duplessis in the test match, they bowled exactly where an, uh, an analyst would want them to bowl. It wasn't, you know, Faf wasn't doing very well. It would be easy. If a batsman's not doing well, you generally start to bowl more at the stumps because you think he's going to miss more. If they would have done that, Faf would have just whipped a bunch of balls off the pads for four. They kept it outside off stump, and that's where he went out almost every time. They uh, Very early on, they worked out that Ra- uh, Rassi van der Dussen had a weakness to the left arm seam, and Sam Curran would be brought on over and over again. There's only one game I could think of, one time he batted where that didn't happen. Uh, as far as bigger tactics, I think you have to look at the fact that they are trying to build a lineup where they have six bowling options, and back to eight or nine. I don't know how much that is Nathan Lehman, Andy Flower thinking, and how much that is, well, we actually have a pretty good crop of all-rounders, so why not develop into that? But what I do know is it was definitely part of the plan for white ball cricket. If we can bat to nine, 10, or 11, that gives everyone freedom to bat the way that we want them to. Me and George Jobel fight about this all the time. He, he's like, oh, there's no analytics in the white ball team. They just told him, oh, go out and bash it. And I'm like, you, you can go out and bash it if your number 11 has scored 10 first-class hundreds. Like, there's a, there's, there's a theory about the way they do it. And they didn't all go out and bash it. Morgan and Root purposely came up with a plan to score at six runs and over without losing wickets in the middle overs, which allowed the openers to go as hard as they wanted and then allowed everyone to slog at the end. And I think there are probably parts to that to test cricket, but test cricket doesn't work on that kind of level. Like what analysis can you give Johnny Bairstow to the fact that every time someone bowls on the stumps, he's probably going to go out. (laughs) You know what I mean? It it takes me back to a really interesting conversation I had with uh, with George Munsey, the, um, uh, who was supposed to be in the hundred this year, the Scottish um, slogger. Uh, Oh, he's going to hate that. I called him a slogger. He's a slogger, (laughs) a a brilliant slogger, incredible hitter. And he was just like, you know, what can you help me with? I said, just, can hit more sixes, man. And it's like, I already hit a lot of sixes. Yeah, hit more. There's a certain point where analysis doesn't help. And what could I say to Bear Uh, Don't go out when the ball's straight. So I think there are little things like that. I think they're very good at their planning. I think they're also very good at um, working out individual roles for different bowlers. So the biggest problem with bowling um, in the history of the game is you end up with three opening bowlers in every team. And you can't use three opening balls. Uh, and I think they're much better at working out what a first change bowler is. And then, the, and you know, going into the future, you know, they are much better at going England style bowlers. So Chris Wokes, for instance, do not translate to overseas conditions. So Chris Wokes has to become a different bowler overseas or we can't use him in that particular situation. I think all those little things, they're starting to come about. Now, some of these are not maybe massive analysis stuff, but because they're looking at the game on a deeper level, they're looking for role players and ways that players fit in. I think one of the other things is if you actually go back to when they won in 10, 11, um, around that period when they were, you know, the when they went past um, South Africa as the best team in the world, 
they were very clearly at that point playing a very simple money ball system that I don't think they got enough credit for, which is if our top three can take 200 balls out of the innings and we have a strong middle order and our bowlers all go under 2.5 runs and over, we can control the entire tempo of the game. So if you go back, you know, you had, you had um, Strauss and Cook uh, and Trot. Those three at the top allowed them to control it. And then you could throw in Bell and, and Pryor and KP and Flintoff when he was around and just go, you guys just do what you do. We're going to, we're going to try and make sure when you're in the crease, you've either got someone solid at the other end or you're already free to play your natural game, which meant that KP is now facing tired bowlers. And it's a very simple thing. And it is taken from, it's taken from the walks in baseball, essentially. But instead of, instead of saying to their top order batsman before, you know, we want you to make this many runs. I think they started to look at it from a more point. Of, we want you to bat this much time. They have used that again recently. They have, vehemently vehemently denied it um <laughs> publicly even though i don't I, want anyone else catching on do they but, but it's really weird that they so i i basically said that they had a hundred ball plan that they said to these guys we want you to face a hundred balls each don't worry about how many runs you make and joe denley has recently come out and said that that's not the case we're gonna have to agree to disagree on that um <laughs> uh but the plan, again, is a very simple thing to go back to that. But you also need the cattle to be able to do that. They had that plan for about six years beforehand. And then they were, oh, fuck, this isn't going to work. So they tried Alex Hales and he batted slower than Alistair Cook hilariously. Um, and and so it's all well and good to have that plan. But in test cricket, because your individual weaknesses are shown so much more you can have all the great analysis in the world if johnny bairstow can't hit the ball when they're bowling on the stumps to him eventually he's going to miss a ball when it's on the stumps and he's going to be out lbw so i think that there are parts of it that we can learn i think england tried to bowl more a uh, bowl first more uh they certainly have back i mean modern sorry ancient cricket wisdom would tell you that you shouldn't use an all-rounder unless they are bang on for one particular position in the team as a batsman or a bowler I think England have stretched that as far as they could stretch it. And they, I reckon that is probably an analysis-led um, theory. They may or may not be wrong. If you, I, I think if you have six bowling options, that works. It probably doesn't work if you have five bowling options, but it probably does work if you have six bowling options. Um, so I think there are little things that they are doing there. Um, but realistically, <laughs> there is a certain point in test cricket where it works so differently than limited overs. Limited overs works like basketball. It's an efficiency game, I think, is how you described it on on that podcast, which yeah. whereby both teams have got 120 opportunities to maximise the number, the amount of the resource that they're trying to accumulate yeah. in in a, in a T20 match, for instance. And Test cricket just doesn't work in that <laughs> way in any way, shape, or form. The in, in in T20 cricket, especially, you're hunting the bowlers. In Test cricket, the bowlers are hunting the batsmen. There is a certain, if you think about it from a very certain perspective if you're facing a bowler who's putting the ball on the same line and length over and over and over again, you have a limited amount of options that you can actually use against them in test cricket. But if you want to talk about analysis, have a look at the fact that when Vernon Philander or Mohamed Abbas is bowling, sometimes Jason Holder, watch what Ben Stokes and Josh Butler do. They change the length. That is probably come from a conversation between the coaches, between the analysts, maybe even between the players and the, and the analysts of what do we do? What can we do? And so you looking at home probably you think, well, it's just because Butler and, and Stokes want to talk the slow bowler, right? But the real the reality is that 
someone like Nathan Lehman or Mo Babat or whoever's working with them I'm basically going, you cannot let this guy bowl to you. If you let this guy bowl to you, he will get you out. You have the ability to change the length. You know, and whether you do that, some batsmen do that by batting a metre out of the crease one ball and a metre behind the crease the next ball. Other batsmen do it by walking at the bowler. Anything that this guy can do to upset the bowler. I think little things like that, England do a lot of little things like that that you can notice. I think I said about before they won the World Cup that they were the most interesting team in cricket to watch because they have so many different styles to them and they have the ability to be utterly shithouse as well, which, you know, <laughs> you know, in test cricket, they... They, when they're playing good, you're just like, how could they ever lose a game again? And then, and then when they start to lose, you're just like, they might lose five on the trot here. But their ability to sort of, be, and, and they won't, they'll end up to all in that series that you've, that you've said both of those opinions. And they have this incredible sort of way of veering. And partly it's because of all those all-rounders, but they're incredibly interesting. They do a lot of very tiny things in a different way. You know, up until Nathan Lehman doing the, uh, doing the, the gesturing uh, in the one days the other day, they are constantly thinking. But essentially, cricket was not made to be analysed in the way that it is. So, I mean, I, I wanted, me and Nathan probably have wanted to use that system a long time. He's probably had to convince Owen Morgan and Sean Massoud so much uh, because cricket is not ready for that yet. And uh, realistically, I think that jobs is, is something that isn't used enough in cricket, which is after every game having a sounding board that isn't the coach and the player comes off and you go through the innings and go, this is what you did in this innings. An analyst job can be that simple. And I would hope that that is where the England position is at the moment. Um, and then you've got all the cool little tricks on top of that. Yeah. Um, I think we're, so we've gone through analytics in, in a fair amount of detail there and, we, and we, we're, we're up to about an hour now. So I think we've got a few more bits on, on T20 cricket because you, you actually have being involved on the inside, as well as speculating there on, on what the England team may do um, w- with their test side. You you were the general manager at uh, St. Lucia Zooks or was it St. Lucia Stars at, at that point? St. Lucia Stars? I, I've got a St. Lucia Stars and an Edinburgh Rock shirt, of which one day I will sell both of them on eBay and retire. <laughs> <laughs> um, firstly, I, I think from a fan's point of view, being the general manager of a sports team sounds like it would be fantastic. <laughs> it, I'm not sure, based on what you've said on on, on other podcasts and, and on what you've written, whether whether it it turned out to be the dream that I imagined it would be. Can you can you can you talk us through a well, a day in the life of or a week in the life of a general manager of a team like Saint Lucia? It's the most most satisfied I've ever had having a job in cricket. Uh, I think it played to all of my strengths as someone, as, you know, when you went through the 4,000 jobs that I've had in cricket before, it was a chance to almost use all of them and everything I knew about cricket. The owner was an absolute nightmare uh, who uh, was terrible in every, almost every conceivable way. So that's not ideal. It's, it's never, a, it's always worse when you got a shit boss at anything. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. The situation wasn't ideal. I went there to be the general manager to work. I'm sorry, I went there to be the assistant general manager and the analyst with the team uh, to work under a guy called Muhammad Khan, who me and Muhammad wanted to go ahead and, uh, and run T20 franchises together. I ended up replacing Muhammad, who was my friend. Uh, that's awkward and shit as well, but someone has to take over a franchise in the middle of a tournament. But, uh, and you also, you and then your phone, your phone just does not stop calling. Uh, agents, players, coaches, the press, uh, P, uh, you know, CPL people. Uh, I was getting upwards of 
40 to 50 uh, emails a day, uh, probably double that again in WhatsApps. Um, my, you know, as I said, my phone just never stopped calling. And it was a very amateur situation. And it was amateur when I was the analyst. So I knew what I was getting into when I took over as general manager. But I think um, it was still it was still a great job. I don't think it is. It's not, I think other people see it as a job where you are a bit like a the guy. If you run a fantasy sports team, you think it's like that. It's not like that when the <laughs> player comes up to you and says, "My trousers don't fit because they shrunk in the wash." <laughs> um, uh, um, it's not that Seinfeld episode. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not. It's not like running a fantasy team when you are when you're worried about the fact that your hotel has a casino in it and you have, you know, young impressionable players that you don't want to be in the casino at 3 a.m. Mm. It's not like a fantasy job when ACSU is calling you about details of games to see, you know, to make sure nothing went wrong. Um, it's not, you know what I mean? Like it is, It there's a lot going on. Also, St. Lucia is an interesting cricket market in that it's not a cricket market. Outside of Darren Sammy, there was no huge cricket beforehand Darren Sammy has almost made cricket a thing in solution by being Darren Sammy so trying to get local media involved and trying to get fans into the grounds and uh, all those sorts of things and you know trying to get the local news anchor um, to to get interested in our younger players and meeting meeting the family of of younger players and saying look i'm probably going to draft this player this year but he's not ready uh but i need a solution player to be on my squad <laughs> um in case darren gets injured um and also because darren is old and darren may even want to retire and become a coach for all i know i need a young player so we if we draft your player your 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 son and your nephew uh let let, let me be very clear he may not play an entire game but this is what we're going to do for him. And this is, I know he's studying at university and this is how we're going to help him. And this is how we're going to teach him how to be a professional. Those sorts of things you don't do when, when you're doing the fantasy stuff. <laughs> so it, you know, and you know, design, you know, uh, for, uh, you know, unpaid bills and dealing with the prime minister of St. Lucia and all those sorts of things. It was an incredible position and I'd love to do it again. And as I said, I, I think I'm probably more suited to do that than almost anything else other than writes about cricket, but it is such a complicated um, situation. There are so many ins and outs and so many relationships and everything. It is certainly not, I think, what, uh, it's not what fans think it is um, at all. You know, just, just down to, the, you know, uh, this player is the most obvious player uh, and I want to get him to my team, but he doesn't like St. Lucia and his wife likes Barbados more. Um, and <laughs> fair, I want, fair to say yeah. it's a multifaceted yeah. role it, it's stuff like that over and over and over again and me literally me on the phone to an overseas player saying i'm willing to pay you not to play so that we have rights on you next year and him going oh so you would pay me and i won't play yes oh but that means other teams can't bid for me yeah but we'll pay you near maximum but you may not pay me maximum no, I may not pay you, Max, <laughs> but you're getting bonus money for this year that you didn't think you were about to get. So it's a lot of, of stuff like that. And um, uh, the team owner's son has a better hotel room than the star player. And the star player is being offloaded on the plane, but the masseuse is on the on that flight in business class. And all it just it just goes on and on. And, you know, we were such a dysfunctional team. Uh, we, we bad ownership no proper management because a general manager really shouldn't be dealing with a lot of these things. Uh, 
And also it had got out, it had spiraled out of control. But I really enjoyed the bit after the tournament finished of planning how we would get better. Uh, you know, having chats with, with, with the captain and the coach, um, chatting to, you know, talent scouts, trying to put together a system of how we can find the best young talent. Also talking to people in St. Lucia and going, this is, you can't sit around and just say St. Lucia is shit. You need to get involved with this. How do I get every young kid in St. Lucia to a talent camp so that I can find one kid that I can uh, have as a professional fielder if I have to, you know, how do I get a reality TV show up about the, t- about the team? Uh, all these sorts of things, uh, you know, that, that you need to sort of deal with. I, I love doing, uh, dealing all that. I got sick and tired of talking to agents who were like, no, 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 he's not as fat as he used to be. Um, <laughs> no, he could definitely bowl now. And me going, was that Malinga? <laughs> well, Malinga ended up there hilariously, didn't he? Uh, you could tell I wasn't involved in that, in that bit. But, um, but yeah, it's just like, no, he definitely bowls now. Crick Info is saying he's bowled two overs in the last 18 months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's bowling in the net. Show me footage of him bowling net yesterday with a newspaper in front of him at full pace. Uh, you know, those sorts of conversations. I suppose it was actually good, a, a lot of fun. Um, but then obviously having the falling out with the, with the owner before the draft, I never actually got to my big draft moment. Every time I've been involved with the draft, it's been as a consultant or with a team that never existed, like Edinburgh Rocks. So I would love to one day plan for a draft professionally and go through the full thing because you know, it's something I really, really want to do. But yeah, it's a crazy well, a, a position. brilliant new tournament in the UK that you might be able to get involved <laughs> with in the, in the near future. Didn't even get a job interview. Didn't even get a job in the 100. It was quite interesting the way that they went about it. A lot of the coaches brought in analysts and people. Um, and I will probably just snipe from the outside until someone gives me a job. That's it. Literally, my, my, the first job offer I got in, in cricket was from the Melbourne Stars. And I think it was just to shut me up in the media. <laughs> they were just sick and tired of me pointing out all the things that they were doing wrong. They said, just come and work for us. Uh, Whatever works. And we got to the final that year. And then uh, and then they changed the ownership structure and I lost my job anyway. <laughs> but there you go. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very thing. But yeah, I'd love to be a general manager again. But I don't think... I don't think it's like the American, you're not like trying to think of them. Um, it's not like Kevin Costner in draft day. Like that's a really random reference. Cause it's probably not, it's, it's not, I, I, okay. It's not like Brad Pitt in Moneyball. A lot of the stuff that you do is so on a, on a level beneath that, uh, you know, uh, ha, Oh no, it's an away game and we don't have enough tickets and Candace Warner can't get her kids into the ground. You know, you have to be able to know the people to make those conversations happen and all those sorts of things. And of course, that family of the player should be able to go. But now, you know, the player wants to bring his mistress and his girlfriend and his girlfriend's mistress. And I don't know, you know, you get to those sorts of levels of things. So it's not, it's somewhere sub Billy Bean. If I was ever to write a book about everything that happened, I mean, you wouldn't believe the stuff that went on that, 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 that um, is so ridiculous. So I think that, you know, it's a dream position for all sports fans of which most sports fans would be like, this is shit if they actually had to do it. <laughs> um, Jared, that's, um, I think, a really good uh, answer to wrap up on. I mean, that we could go into a million different, we can go and have a million other conversations from here about uh, T20 franchise leagues around the world, about the role of the general manager in the future. Um, maybe for another time, we have been speaking to you for over an hour, so we will let you go now. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug or mention to our listeners before we wrap things up, though? Oh, I mean, just uh, you know, I don't want to don't want to take subscribers away from you guys, but people should <laughs> definitely unsubscribe to your podcasts and go over to mine. Uh, Double Century is my one on the history of cricket, and Red Inker is my one I do every week. Um, and then I've got a YouTube channel which is just under my name, where 
Uh, we've been doing some interesting stuff over there. So I'm sure if they like your podcast, they will enjoy those those podcasts and those videos as well. We're, we're not actually too big on YouTube, so I, I, I feel uh, happy endorsing uh, your YouTube oh, channel. Definitely. There's some there's some really good stuff over there. The Neil Wagner <laughs> video in particular uh, is one I would recommend. Thank you for joining us, Jared. Um, yeah, hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. No worries. Cheers, guys. Have a good one. Cheers, Jared. Thank you. The Cricket Podcast. I think it should never be permitted to happen again. That is very good.